You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 105, The Imperial City. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by inviting you to join us on Patreon. The bonus episodes are still going strong. I just released the 14th installment, covering topics like music, the black soldiers of the French Revolution, and the secrets of Talleyrand's political longevity. If you haven't signed up yet, not only are you missing out on all this bonus content, you're also missing out on ad-free versions of the regular episodes, and a lot of interesting questions and comments from our community of patrons. Anyway. We left off last time in the summer of 1807. Napoleon was finally back in his capital after a long and very eventful period on campaign, culminating in the Treaty of Tilsit. Although France and Russia were now allied, the war was not over. Britain fought on, and as we discussed last episode, the European geopolitical scene was not as quiet as it might have looked at first glance. However, compared to the previous two years of near-constant action, we are now entering a period of relative calm. In this episode, I'd like to examine the city that greeted Napoleon when he returned from Tilsit. Bonaparte had now been in power for over seven years, and his regime was beginning to make its mark on Paris. Napoleon's empire would prove to be an important formative period in the history of Paris part of a great transition from a dirty, cramped, chaotic medieval city to the beautiful modern metropolis that we know today. As we'll see, the improvement and development of the capital was one of the biggest priorities for Napoleon's government. Remember, Bonaparte was a centralizer. He wanted to run all of France, and to a certain extent, all of Western Europe, from Paris. The city was to be the seat of absolute power. And so, the emperor needed it functioning well, and he wanted it to look the part. Before he even came to power, Napoleon said, quote, If I were the master of France, I would make Paris not only the most beautiful city in existence, but the most beautiful city that ever existed, or that ever could exist. End quote. As we've seen in many past episodes, Bonaparte was strongly driven to always be the best at everything. Now that he ruled France, it seems that same attitude applied to his capital city. And of course, as we've discussed in past episodes, Bonaparte was nothing if not a product of the revolution. As a young man, he had seen the power of the so-called Paris mob up close. Those images had never left him. 
seeing the streets ruled by belligerent gangs of armed civilians, walking the grounds of the Tuileries Palace, strewn with the mutilated corpses of the King's Swiss Guard. He himself now lived at the Tuileries. It certainly must have occurred to him that if he lost the loyalty of the people of the capital, those scenes might play out again. In retrospect, we can pretty safely say there was little chance of that happening. The social and political conditions that had radicalized so many Parisians in the 1790s were long gone, and the imperial regime was far more stable than any of its predecessors. Still, I don't think we can blame anyone who witnessed those shocking events for worrying about the power of the mob. Napoleon still had the loyalty of poor and working-class Parisians, but he would work very hard to keep it that way. To understand Napoleon's impact on the city, we need to understand what Paris was like at the beginning of his regime. Somewhere around 600,000 people lived in the capital, making it about the size of modern-day Baltimore or Detroit in the U.S., a bit smaller than Hamilton, Ontario, and a bit smaller than Sheffield in the U.K. That might not sound very impressive, but the only city in Europe bigger than Paris was London, with over 900,000 residents. Third place was Naples, which only held about 400,000 people. So by our standards, Paris was a mid-sized city. But if you could stand on a street in the center of the city, it probably would not have felt that way. Paris was geographically tiny. In Napoleon's day, much of the modern city was agricultural land, or even totally undeveloped. All of those 600,000 people were packed into a very small area, right in the center of the modern city. Paris is an ancient place, probably over 2,000 years old during the time of the First Empire. The city had evolved chaotically, haphazardly. There was no such thing as urban planning in the Middle Ages. No zoning, no permits, and no inspectors. People erected buildings wherever and however they saw fit. Streets and major roads developed organically along the routes people tended to take between various important locations. The result was an almost impossibly complicated and chaotic web of winding streets and narrow alleys. I've seen it compared to an ant colony or a rabbit warren. In many places, the sun was almost blocked out at the street level, because people tended to build upper stories wider to get a little more valuable square footage, resulting in buildings that loomed ponderously over the street. Sometimes streets took sudden turns, because someone had decided to build right in the middle of the thoroughfare. It was very inconvenient, and made for a dark, unventilated, unwholesome environment, but probably inevitable with space at a premium. With so many people crammed into such a small area, poor and working-class Parisians typically lived in a single room, usually with their entire families. Even for comparatively wealthy shopkeepers and artisans, it was not uncommon to rent two rooms, one to serve as a storefront or workshop, and another for the whole family to live in. Even without elevators, buildings in the city center could be very tall. Five or six stories was not uncommon. That's a lot of stairs. Imagine a fire breaking out, needing to escape quickly and the only way out being down a single staircase of five flights, crowded with every other person living in the building. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the death rates among poor Parisians were very high. In fact, like most European cities of this era, the death rate was far higher than the birth rate. 
The population grew over the course of the 18th century because there were so few opportunities out in the overpopulated countryside. Desperate, ambitious, or bored peasants streamed into European cities, hoping to make their fortune, get a taste of a more exciting lifestyle, or simply earn enough to feed their families. In some cases, people lived in Paris only part-time, leaving their families in the provinces and coming into the city to do some kind of short-term or seasonal work. New arrivals tended to cluster together, just like they do in immigrant neighborhoods today. You might walk down a street in the capital and suddenly hear everyone around you speaking Breton or Flemish, or an Occitan dialect from the south. In this way, the economy and society of Paris had a huge impact on the whole country. As we've discussed in past episodes, markets of this era were much more isolated from one another than they are today. But in almost every corner of France, there were people whose livelihoods were tied directly to the capital, and families who had someone working in the big city. Some of these people realized their dreams. Some found only misery and death. For most, it was something in between. There was work to be had in the city, but permanent, well-paid, salaried positions were hard to come by. Most of the very poorest Parisians eked out an existence as day laborers, wandering the city until they found some temporary job. It was a precarious existence, and the constant stress of this lifestyle always living hand-to-mouth, just one disaster or run of bad luck away from starvation, was a big reason the poor of Paris had become so radical in the early phases of the revolution. This class of people had been more or less ignored by the old regime. Napoleon would not make the same mistake. You can debate the degree to which this came from conviction, and to what degree it was simple self-preservation. But poor and working-class Parisians certainly appreciated it. This constituency was generally loyal to the regime. There were price controls on basic foodstuffs, and Napoleon also worked to increase supply, building eight new state-of-the-art food markets, one of which still exists today, the Al de Blanc Manteau. He also built a wine market, a wheat market, new slaughterhouses, and grain warehouses, all with taxpayer money. There were also new charity hospitals, which served those who could not afford a private doctor. This program was extremely rudimentary, nowhere near a modern-style government healthcare program, but it did provide some recourse for people who otherwise would have had no choice but to lie in their beds at home and hope they got better. The imperial government also made dramatic improvements to the water system, which we'll discuss later in this episode. But the most important government program for poor Parisians was actually an indirect subsidy. A big reason Bonaparte undertook so many ambitious construction programs in the capital was to ensure there were well-paying jobs for the poor working men of the city. Construction was one of the most common occupations for men at the bottom rung of the economic ladder. As we've discussed, these policies even benefited many poor families out in the provinces who had a father or son working in the city and sending money home. All the great monuments, buildings, and urban renewal projects we'll be talking about for the rest of the episode were, in part, make-work programs for the poor. No country of this era had the money or administrative capacity for something like a modern welfare state. Not even close. At the dawn of the 19th century, this was about as close as they could get. And to a degree, these policies worked. 
As I've already mentioned, poor Parisians were generally supportive of the imperial government. Under Napoleon, the city began growing again. During the Revolution, Paris had shrunk, first from the emigration of the nobility, and then the economic and social chaos of the 1790s had scared off new arrivals. Parisians were still dying at the same high rate, and no longer being replaced by that steady stream of peasants from the countryside. Under Bonaparte, that trend was reversed. Paris was back to growing at an incredible rate. Once again, it was seen as a place of opportunity, in part due to the restoration of order and in part due to government policies that kept wages comparatively high, food relatively cheap, and conditions at least somewhat livable. Throughout Napoleon's regime, right up until the bitter end, there would never be a single major public disturbance in the poor sections of the city. Subsequent French history would prove that the so-called Paris mob was not a thing of the past, but it will remain dormant for the rest of our story. It seems many of them were too busy building Napoleon's imperial city to think about politics. When we analyze Napoleon's regime, we tend to look first at his military campaigns, then at the big, sweeping political and diplomatic achievements, the Napoleonic Code, the Concordat, the Treaty of Tilsit, the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, etc. But it's important to keep in mind that for average people, these more mundane policies that actually had an impact on daily life would have been far more important. Marengo, Austerlitz, or Friedland were just names of far-off events that only really had a direct impact on people who had close friends or family in the Grande Armée. Plentiful work at high wages, cheap food, better living conditions, and better medical care. These are real tangible things that even an uneducated illiterate could understand. Napoleon always believed his popularity was built on his reputation as a military commander, but I think he underestimated the degree to which his government's attention to these previously ignored strata of society built real loyalty. Of course, we shouldn't paint too rosy a picture here. By modern standards, poverty was rampant in Napoleon's Paris. Living and working conditions for the poor were deplorable, and government services were almost non-existent. Still, compared to the old regime, or to the hopeful but hard years of the revolution, Napoleon's government seemed like a good alternative to many poor Parisians. If you want to look at it more cynically, you might say Napoleon bought the loyalty of the people of Paris very cheaply. The truth was, this segment of society was so miserable and marginalized that even a pittance from the government was enough to convince them Bonaparte was on their side and cared about their well-being. Meanwhile, the new Napoleonic elite enriched themselves just like the elite of the old regime, while those at the bottom toiled away much as they had before. Of course, if he was here to defend himself, Napoleon would probably ask what more he could have done with the limited tools at his disposal, and point to real, tangible improvements to the lives of the poor under his regime. Still, there is no denying the fact that Napoleonic France was a society of haves and have-nots, where incredible opulence sometimes existed only a few minutes' walk away from unspeakable poverty. The economist Thomas Piketty estimated that in 1807, around 1% of the population of Paris owned half of all assets in the city. Meanwhile, three-quarters of the population died without enough money or assets to require a will. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, let's talk about some of these monuments being built by the poor construction workers of Paris. Of all the changes Napoleon made to the city, these are almost certainly the best known. They were far more than just make-work projects to provide employment for the masses. From what we can tell, Napoleon really believed in these projects. Bonaparte himself put it this way, quote, Men are only as great as the monuments they leave, end quote. His friend and secretary Bourrienne explained, quote, Napoleon's passion for monuments almost equaled his passion for war. The destruction of men and the construction of monuments were two things perfectly in unison in the mind of Bonaparte, end quote. Some of this was surely political calculation. As we've discussed, these huge projects provided a lot of employment. And beyond that, Napoleon believed the legitimacy of his regime depended on his reputation as a great general and his record of success on the battlefield. All the major monuments built in Paris under the First Empire celebrate military achievements. There are no significant memorials to the Civil Code, the Concordat, the re-establishment of national unity after the divisions of the Revolution, or any of the other diplomatic or political successes of the imperial regime. This is how Bonaparte wanted his people to think of him, first and foremost as a general who always delivered victory. But I think there was more than just the cynical, calculating side of Napoleon behind these monuments. They were also reflective of his higher aspirations. As we've discussed many times since our very earliest episodes, Bonaparte was deeply influenced by classical history, particularly the legacy of the Roman Empire. This was not just some childhood obsession. As ruler of France, he continued to look to ancient Rome for inspiration. Bonaparte believed he was on a mission to rekindle the old spirit of civic pride and duty that he believed had been the secret to the Romans' success. You see this all the time in his propaganda and public statements. His enemies saw him as little more than an anarchist, tearing down every old institution he could get his hands on. But if you pay attention to his own rhetoric, he saw himself as a restorer, not a destroyer breaking the bonds of feudalism that had held Europe back for over a thousand years, and finally putting it back on the path to prosperity and glory laid out by the ancient Romans all those years ago. All the way back in episode 32, we discussed a monument Bonaparte ordered built in 1810 on the battlefield of Arcalais, one of his earliest victories. Part of the inscription reads, quote, Italy restored to its brilliant destiny and to the rights that will return it to its former glory. End quote. It has been suggested that some of Napoleon's classical obsession was just another facet of his constant need to legitimize his regime, 
After all, unlike his peers, he couldn't rely on the traditional sources of authority for European monarchs, dynastic succession and the blessing of the church. So, why not dig further back into the history of the continent? Perhaps that was part of it, but everything I've read about Napoleon indicates that this was an authentic part of his character. As we've discussed in past episodes, he was conscious of himself as one of the great men of history, actively playing the part of a Caesar or an Augustus. He was not only responding to the political conditions of the moment, he was imagining how people might view him decades or even centuries after his death. In his youth, he had read about his historical heroes with awe, and he wanted future generations to see him in the same light. The monuments were a part of that. As he had done since the beginning of his career, he was writing his own legend. The Roman connection to some of Napoleon's monuments is quite explicit. In 1806, Napoleon and his cultural advisors began discussing what to do with the Place Vendôme one of the most famous and fashionable public squares in Paris. For decades, the public space in the middle of the square had been dominated by a huge statue of the Sun King, Louis XIV, riding on horseback in military attire, erected in celebration of his numerous conquests. As you might imagine, the revolutionaries were not great fans of this statue, and it was torn down in 1792. The French government of the early 1790s had a lot on its plate, and took no immediate steps to replace the statue. So the center of the square simply sat empty for nearly a decade and a half. In celebration of his own conquests, Napoleon wanted to replace the statue of the Sun King with one of the most famous and visually stunning monuments of ancient Rome, Trajan's Column, a 30-meter or 98-foot-tall column that still stands today in the city of Rome. It was built in the early 100s AD, in honor of the Emperor Trajan's victories over the Dacians. Bonaparte approached his cultural advisors with an idea to disassemble Trajan's column, ship it to Paris, and rebuild it in the Place Vendôme. Fortunately for the city of Rome, he was talked down by Vivant Denon, director of the Napoleon Museum, or the Louvre as we call it today. Denon convinced him to build a totally new monument, based on the design of Trajan's column. Just like the Roman original, the column would be decorated with depictions of a successful campaign, in this case the invasion of Germany in 1805, including the capture of General Mach and his army at Ulm, and the triumph at Austerlitz, spiraling up towards the top, where there would be a small viewing platform and a statue of the emperor himself. These reliefs would be cast in bronze, obtained from melted-down enemy cannon captured during the campaign. Napoleon loved incorporating captured enemy weapons into his monuments and buildings. It was both a reminder of his military prowess and a tradition borrowed from the ancient Romans. Napoleon himself chose what scenes would be depicted in these reliefs, and they were then sketched and cast by a whole team of artists. Fittingly, the base of the column was built out of Corsican marble. The inscription reads, quote, The August Emperor Napoleon erected this monument of the German war, and dedicated it to the glory of his greatest army. It is made out of bronze cannon captured from the Germans, routed by his leadership in the space of three months in 1805. On top of the column stood a bronze statue of Napoleon dressed as a Roman emperor, wearing a toga with a victory laurel at his temples, 
one hand resting on the pommel of a sword, the other holding an orb with the winged goddess of victory perched on top. It was sculpted by Antoine Denis Chaudet, one of the most famous artists of the age, and the same man who designed the imperial eagles carried by the Grande Armée. The column still stands today, and is certainly quite impressive, but it was only meant to be one of a pair of monuments to the Austerlitz campaign. Just down the street from the Place Vendôme, there was an abandoned construction site where the old regime had planned to build a church, but the construction had been plagued by problems, then the project was abandoned with the outbreak of the revolution. Napoleon restarted construction, but with a few modifications. Now, the building would be a massive, imposing neoclassical structure, modeled on ancient classical temples. It would not be dedicated to God, but to France's military greatness. Napoleon called it the Temple to the Glory of the Grande Armée. However, the new regime ran into the same construction problems as the old regime, and when Napoleon finally fell, it was not yet completed. So it was given back to the church, and is now known today as the Church of St. Mary Magdalene. The Von Dome Column has been a hotly contested property. As we'll talk about in the distant future, Napoleon's legacy has gone through many ups and downs in the centuries after his death, and you can trace many of these ups and downs by the fate of the statue on top of the column. After Waterloo, King Louis XVIII had the statue removed. It was melted down and recast into a statue of King Henry IV, which still stands today on the Pont Neuf. After the fall of the Bourbon dynasty, the more liberal king, Louis-Philippe, ordered a new statue of Napoleon placed on top of the column, although Bonaparte would be depicted in his ordinary, everyday clothes, much less reverential than the almost godlike Roman emperor depiction in the original statue. The new regime was willing to give Napoleon credit for his skills as a general, but they didn't want a return to the iconography of the empire. That changed a few decades later, when Napoleon's nephew, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, came to power and crowned himself Emperor Napoleon III. As you might imagine, he was very interested in resurrecting the iconography of his uncle's regime, and so he had the more prosaic version of the statue taken down and replaced by a copy of the original. And so, once again, Napoleon lorded over the Place Vendôme, just like Augustus but it would only last a few years. In 1871, Napoleon III got himself captured by the enemy in a disastrous war against the Prussians, and the people of Paris had had enough. They rose up in rebellion against both the French government and the Prussian forces besieging the city during a period known as the Paris Commune. The great artist Gustave Courbet had been elected as one of the leaders of the Commune. As an artist, he knew the power of symbolism and he made an impassioned case to demolish the column, calling it, quote, devoid of all artistic value, tending to perpetuate by its expression the ideas of war and conquest, end quote. The other leaders of the commune agreed, and the statue was pulled down for a third time, soon followed by the rest of the column. After the new Republican French government suppressed the commune, they rebuilt the column and commissioned yet another replica of the original statue. They sent the bill to Gustave Courbet. Despite his success as a painter, he had no hope of paying for a massive public monument out of his own pocket, and he was forced to spend the rest of his life in exile. 
Although I suppose the bill for its construction is still outstanding, that incarnation of the statue has remained ever since. Through the golden age of the Belle Epoque, through the trials of the First World War and the humiliations of the Second, through the post-war boom and the uncertain years that followed, all the way up until today, Napoleon has watched it all from the top of the Vendome column. But who knows? French politics are never static. Maybe the day will come when the Parisians decide on a new version of the emperor, or even decide to pull him down again. I realize this is a bit of a digression, but I hope it illustrates that these monuments mean something. They represent the city and its history. Different governments and different segments of the population all have their own vision of the city's true face, and their own ideas about what parts of its history should be celebrated. The urban geography of major cities like Paris has always been contested, and probably always will be. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It was a similar story with the most famous of Napoleon's monuments, the Arc de Triomphe. Early in his regime, Bonaparte had actually rejected proposals to construct triumphal arches, celebrating his victories. But his views seemed to have changed at some point in 1805. After Austerlitz, Napoleon told the men of the Grande Armée, quote, You will march home through arches of triumph. End quote. The first of these to be built in Paris was actually not the iconic Arc de Triomphe on the Champs-Élysées that most people are familiar with today, but the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, built near the Tuileries Palace. This earlier arch is also an impressive structure, built in the neoclassical style and topped by the famous Horses of St. Mark, which had served as iconic symbols of three different cities during their long history ancient Rome, imperial Constantinople, and Venice, through that city's golden age. The horses on the arch today are replicas. The originals were returned after Napoleon's fall. The emperor was not satisfied with the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel. He felt it was too small, dwarfed by its surroundings. He had high standards for monumental architecture, just like everything else. And so, when Napoleon and his cultural advisors began discussing a new monument to be built in an open space known as the Star at the end of the Champs-Élysées, they planned something much bigger. Napoleon had originally been leaning towards an alternative proposal for a huge obelisk, probably not unlike the Washington Monument that would eventually be built in Washington, D.C., but at the last minute, he changed his mind and approved the plans for a new triumphal arch. Once again, his architects would borrow from ancient Rome, 
using the famous Arch of Titus as their model. But they would be working on a much grander scale. Napoleon's monument would be nearly twice the size of Titus's. And it was certainly Napoleon's monument. As usual, he played an active role in the design and planning. However, it would not be dedicated solely to him or to his victories. This new Arc de Triomphe would celebrate all the struggles France had been through since the first outbreak of war, all the way back in 1792. It would be inscribed with the names of all the country's major battlefield victories, and the names of all the senior commanders that had led French troops in those years. That included victories Napoleon had played no part in achieving, and generals who did not have good relationships with the emperor. In fact, it even included names of generals who had served the revolution but turned traitor, like General Pichegru. I think this shows Napoleon really took this project seriously. Obviously, he also had selfish reasons for building this monument, like legitimizing his regime and building up his own reputation, but if these were the only goals, the Arch could have been much more focused on his personal triumphs. It seems he really believed the struggles of the preceding decades deserved a proper memorial, something that would stand the test of time and give future generations of Frenchmen some sense of the achievements of their forefathers. The design ultimately picked by Napoleon and his advisors was very ambitious. The arch would be 50 meters high, 45 meters wide, and 22 meters deep. That's 164 feet by 148 feet by 72 feet for my fellow Americans. It would be covered in statues and reliefs, depicting famous episodes from the Wars of the Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, along with allegorical representations of France's struggles. In fact, the project was so ambitious that it quickly ran into problems. Just laying the foundations for such a massive, heavy structure took two years. In 1810, when Napoleon married Marie-Louise of Austria, he was so embarrassed by the lack of progress on the arch that he ordered a wooden replica built around the construction site. By the time of Napoleon's downfall, the arch was nowhere near complete. This put the restored Bourbon dynasty in a bind. The project was massively expensive, and essentially a celebration of their political enemies, including the people who had executed so many members of their family. Few royalists had any enthusiasm for the Arc de Triomphe. On the other hand, tearing down or repurposing the monument would have been highly provocative, an insult to all those who had struggled so hard through those terrible years of war. The restored French monarchy had enough problems trying to unite the country. They didn't need another controversy with the left. And so, the Arc de Triomphe simply sat, as it was, unfinished for decades. The country couldn't make up its mind on the legacy of the revolution, so how could it build a monument to the wars fought in its name? Just like with the Vendome Column, the problem would not be resolved until the Bourbons were overthrown, and replaced with the more liberal King Louis-Philippe a regime which may not have been totally reconciled to the revolution, but was at least willing to pay tribute to men who had fought and died for France, whatever government they had served under. We've devoted a lot of time now to discussing the two most famous monuments of Napoleonic Paris, and not without some reason. These were the most expensive projects the empire undertook inside the capital, and the ones that demanded the most of Napoleon's time and attention. 
but triumphal arches and monumental columns don't have much of an impact on daily life, other than for the men who actually made their livings building them. If you asked most Parisians what Napoleon had done for the city, they probably would have told you about much more mundane projects. We've discussed some of these, the new markets, grain warehouses, and other infrastructure that helped secure the city's food supply, and the new charity hospitals that served the poor. Probably the most important of these improvements was to the city's water system. By the time Napoleon came to power, the city had outgrown its water infrastructure long ago. Convenient access to clean, fresh water was a luxury for the wealthy and the bourgeoisie. Most poor Parisians had to either haul their water across long distances from the few public water fountains, or settle for unsanitary water. This chronic lack of fresh water was a big reason for the high rates of disease and death in the slums. One day during the consulate, shortly after his seizure of power, Napoleon had a conversation with one of his advisors, a scientist, inventor, businessman, and statesman named Jean-Antoine Chaptal. He told Chaptal he wanted to do something for the capital. Chaptal replied, quote, Give it water, end quote. Napoleon seized on this idea with his usual energy, ordering the construction of a canal between the city and the nearby Ourc River, along with 15 new public water fountains, mostly in the poor, densely populated neighborhoods where the water shortage was felt most acutely. With this new canal, there was finally enough water to keep the fountains running around the clock rather than only during the day, as they had under the previous system. By 1812, there was a free government service to deliver water to all corners of the city. All Parisians of every walk of life finally had access to clean water. There were also massive improvements to the city's sewage system. We have a lot of informed estimates of how many French people died as a result of Napoleon's policies, but it's much harder to calculate how many were saved as a result of banal projects like these. As we've seen in many past episodes, Napoleon loved order and wanted everything organized according to rational, logical designs. Paris was anything but. The city was pure chaos. It had evolved organically. The modern idea of urban planning had not even really been conceptualized, let alone implemented. Paris had developed according to the needs and whims of thousands of individual people over the course of centuries. There had never been any kind of plan, or even the hint of a plan. Napoleon worked to bring some modicum of order to this mess, although even with his tremendous energy and resources, he was barely able to make a dent. Paris would not truly transcend its origins as an unruly warren of medieval alleys until much later in the 19th century, in large part thanks to Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon III. However, there were some real improvements to the organization of the city under the First Empire. Napoleon built new roads, big, wide, navigable boulevards that led in the sun and cut simple, straight passages through the meandering anarchy of the city. The most famous of these is the Rue de Rivoli. There were many others as well. The Rue des Pyramides, Rue Cambon, Rue Mondovie, Rue de Montabour, Rue de Castiglione, and the Rue de la Paix. As you may have noticed, many of them were named for the emperor's military victories. There were also three new bridges, vitally important infrastructure in a city divided down the middle by a river. 
the imperial government also invested heavily in improving existing streets. Efforts were made to straighten out major thoroughfares wherever possible, mostly by remodeling or demolishing buildings that jutted out into the thoroughfare. The imperial government also standardized numerical street addresses for the first time. Believe it or not, prior to Napoleon, numerical addresses did exist, but were totally arbitrary. On one street, the numbers might ascend as you move north, while the next block over, they might ascend as you moved south. Multiple buildings might claim the same number. So if someone told you to meet them at, say, number 10, Rue Saint-Jacques, you might end up in totally different parts of the city unless you specified which number 10. Napoleon solved this problem with a simple program of standardization. Address numbers would ascend from the banks of the River Seine, with the building nearest to the river as number 1. Even numbers would be on the right, odd numbers on the left. Napoleon also introduced universal right-hand driving for carriages, wagons, and horses. Previously, there had been no system. Drivers and riders just squeezed in wherever they could. As you might imagine, some of the old city was lost with all these changes. A lot of buildings were demolished to make way for Napoleon's vision of Paris. But it wasn't all out with the old, in with the new. The imperial government also spent huge sums on restoring, renovating, and expanding old buildings. Well-known Paris landmarks like the Pantheon, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, Les Invalides, the Louvre, and the Institute of France all had significant work done on them under Napoleon's government. All told, the imperial regime spent well over a hundred million francs on all these various civic improvements inside Paris. And that's only counting the more mundane projects. The monuments are counted separately. To put that in perspective, Prussian war operations under the Treaty of Tilsit were 150 million francs, a sum that was considered shockingly high for the entire country of Prussia. We don't actually have a full, clear accounting of all of Napoleon's spending in Paris. It definitely at least came close to that number, and probably exceeded it if you count all the monuments and new public buildings. Hopefully that gives you some idea of Napoleon's vision for his capital. But what was life actually like for Parisians under the empire? Well, many people's lives were dominated by work. Today, the French working week is 35 hours, but that legislation was a long way away in Napoleon's time. 10, 11, or even 12-hour days were not uncommon, and in many professions, six-day working weeks were the norm. For those without money to hire servants, simply keeping one's family fed and clothed and the family residence livable was often a full-time job. When people did have free time, they often spent it away from the home. As we discussed earlier in the episode, space was at a premium. Most Parisian families lived in a single room. This was even the case for some skilled artisans and small business owners. Having enough space to comfortably host a large number of people for a salon or a party was truly a luxury. The rich and the upper middle classes certainly took advantage of that luxury. Paris was famous for its lively social scene. Someone who was popular and well-connected might have the option to attend a party or salon every day. However, that was the exception, not the rule. When they were looking for entertainment and amusement, most Parisians went out into the city. Theater was one of the most popular diversions. Theaters had to be officially licensed by the government, 
and submit all their plays to the imperial censors. No direct criticism of the government or the army was allowed, nor was anything that might be deemed controversial. Napoleon himself was a devotee of the theater and attended quite often, but he wanted his people entertained and enlightened by what they saw on the stage, not rioting over political or cultural controversies. You can see this tension in Napoleon's approach to the theater. He loved it, and sometimes even got personally involved, giving unsolicited advice to actors and directors. However, he was keenly aware of its power, shaping the attitudes of the audience and even their values. That made him nervous. He wanted people to watch edifying plays, and was skeptical of lighter fare like comedies and romances. For all these reasons, the number of officially licensed theaters was decreased in 1807, from 29 to just 9. It's ironic, Bonaparte was an authentic admirer of the arts. He desperately wanted Paris to maintain its edge as a leading cultural city, and his government spent lavishly on culture. But fundamentally, he was actually a bit of a bore. He liked didactic art that tried to teach its audience solid values. He was very skeptical of anything remotely challenging or controversial, or, God forbid, fun. It's important to keep in mind that in this era, live theater was a truly popular art form. Obviously, the poorest of the poor didn't attend. They were struggling just to survive. But, for example, you could buy a ticket to the most prestigious theater in the country, the Théâtre Français, for about the same amount of money that the average construction worker earned in a day. So, this was a luxury that was not entirely out of reach for the lower middle classes, or even more prosperous working class people. There were also much cheaper and less distinguished options, outside the officially licensed theaters. Dinner theaters were very popular, they catered mostly to the middle class. And at the very bottom of the scale, there were less formal performances that would probably have been closer to Victorian-era vaudeville or music hall productions. For the more high-minded, there were hundreds of reading rooms throughout the city. These were essentially private libraries. For a small fee, the patrons had access to a huge variety of books, newspapers, magazines, and games, as well as access to the physical spaces of the reading room, which were often very elegant. Printed materials were expensive by our standards. Even a middle-class person might find it prohibitive to actually subscribe to a newspaper or magazine. Even the top publications in the country typically had circulation numbers in the low tens of thousands, but each copy would pass through many hands before it was finally thrown out, often either in these reading rooms or in the city's famous cafes. The Napoleonic era was a mixed blessing for the cafés of Paris. The city was once again growing and prosperous. The streets were safe, people had money to spend, and were eager to spend their free time outside the house. However, the British blockade and the loss of Haiti presented some unique challenges. Coffee beans, chocolate, and cane sugar were suddenly far more expensive and harder to come by. Some café owners pivoted to selling foods that could be produced with only domestic products, like ice cream. Napoleon was well aware of his countrymen's love of sweet treats, and he actually devoted significant resources to developing a domestic alternative to cane sugar, sugar beets. 
While beet sugar is not as highly prized as cane sugar, it is hard to tell the difference, and this program was actually very successful. If a reading room or a cafe or an ice cream shop didn't appeal to you, you might simply go out walking. This was a very common pastime, even among the wealthy. Among the social elite, it could be quite competitive. Being seen out walking in a fashionable area with desirable companions wearing trendy clothes was a good way to improve your social standing. In high society, people were downright snobbish about their walks. Being seen out promenading on a street that was no longer hip could be a great embarrassment. Walkers tended to congregate on major commercial streets, in covered malls like the old Palais Royal, and in parks. Paris was famous for its parks and gardens, some public, maintained by the city, and some private, requiring a membership or charging an entry fee. Some of these were quite elaborate, with all kinds of exotic architecture and landscaping features. Many included attractions like live music, performances, and games, maybe closer to a concert or a festival atmosphere than a typical stroll in the park. When Parisians of the First Empire were looking for a good time, one thing united almost everyone, of every age, class, and gender. The bottle. By our standards, the people of Napoleonic France drank an absolutely insane amount of alcohol. The negative effects of heavy drinking on human health were not well understood, and with drinking so deeply embedded in Western culture, perhaps people didn't want to see it. As you might expect, wine was by far the most popular intoxicant, followed by what is usually referred to as brandy, but was sometimes little better than moonshine. Beer and cider were consumed as well, but were nowhere near as common. Alcohol was taxed when it was imported into the city, and so there were a large number of bars and liquor stores just beyond the customs barrier that catered to poor Parisians who were willing to take a long walk outside the city for discount drinks. If you live near the American-Canadian border or a dry county in the American South, you are probably familiar with the phenomenon. There was also a booming smuggling business. Alcohol was the most commonly smuggled item, but all kinds of goods were taxed before entering the capital, and a lot of people made a good living for themselves dodging these taxes. The municipal guard was locked in a constant game of cat and mouse with these smugglers. Some of these operations were so elaborate that they had tunnels under the city walls. Paris didn't really have a police force in the modern sense of the term. There were two organizations responsible for upholding law and order in the city. Both were founded by Napoleon. The most numerous was the Municipal Guard. They were actually a military unit, equipped, trained, and organized just like any other part of the French army. They patrolled the streets, looked for smugglers, stood guard over important locations, and were sometimes called upon to arrest suspects or stop crimes they witnessed on patrol. But, unlike a modern police force, they were not really trained for or tasked with conducting investigations. That side of police work was handled by another institution, the Sûreté, or literally, security. The men of the Sûreté did not wear uniforms. They were much closer to the modern archetype of the detective, charged with investigating crimes in which there was no obvious suspect, keeping tabs on known criminals, and, perhaps most importantly, cultivating informants. 
However, it's important to keep in mind that most modern methods of policing were not developed until much later in the 19th or early 20th century. By our standards, the Sûreté were bumbling amateurs. In fact, many of them were actually former criminals, whose main skill was their personal knowledge of the Paris underworld. I have seen varying estimates of the total number of law enforcement officers in Paris under the First Empire. They all seem to agree on a number somewhere just over 2,000. That's actually a pretty respectable force compared to modern American cities of similar size. The Baltimore Police Department employs about 3,000 people, the Detroit Police Department about 2,500. Despite their crude methods, the Sûreté and Municipal Guard seem to have done a decent job. Paris had a reputation as one of the safest cities in Europe. It was a very different story for the firefighters of Paris. By our standards, the city was a tinderbox. Most lighting was by flame, and building codes were practically non-existent. There were under 300 firefighters for the whole city, and they were part-timers, paid only a small stipend. There was no system to summon the firemen in case of emergency. News did spread pretty quickly in Paris, and it was just hoped they would hear news of a fire and find their way to it under their own initiative. In 1810, this weak system nearly resulted in a disaster of historic proportions. On the 1st of July, the Austrian ambassador held a party at the embassy. Many of the most eminent citizens of the capital attended, including the emperor and empress. No one knows how, but a major fire broke out during the party. As you can imagine, everyone in the building was seized by panic. Napoleon and Marie-Louise were able to escape, but 14 other guests were not so lucky, including the wife of the Austrian ambassador. Only six firemen showed up, and according to Bonaparte, they were all drunk. Unsurprisingly, they were little help, and the inferno raged well into the next morning. Obviously, Napoleon found this completely unacceptable. Within a year, the old firefighting system had been abolished. The new Paris Fire Brigade would be under the auspices of the military. The firemen would technically be soldiers. They would be under military discipline and live in barracks, where they could be on call whenever needed. Perhaps most importantly, there would be a permanent system of watchmen to spread the news in the event of a fire. This organization has persisted. Even today, Paris firemen are technically members of the French military. In a recent bonus episode, I talked about the difficulties of discussing Bonaparte as an individual. After his seizure of power, Napoleon the person, who we came to know in our early episodes, was very quickly eclipsed by Napoleon the statesman and Napoleon the conqueror. His public career was not only his duty, it was his passion. From our very earliest episodes, we talked about his desire to emulate the great heroes of the past and write his own life into the annals of history. And so, in a sense, Napoleon's Paris was a self-portrait. We can see many sides of his character reflected in the changes he made to the city. Those monuments that took decades to complete could only have been built by a person of great ambition and grandiose vision. They were also powerful evidence of his desire to rekindle the spirit of the ancient Romans. 
We've seen his need to impose order and logic on chaotic systems many times in the past. That played out quite literally in his reforms to the city's streets, and in the founding of new law enforcement and firefighting institutions. Paris is also a great showcase for Napoleon's higher aspirations. He was sincere in his desire to make his capital the leading city of the world. He put a lot of energy and resources into achieving this goal, and I think even his critics would have to admit he was pretty effective. Above all, Napoleon's Paris is a testament to Bonaparte's desire to be seen, and to see himself, as a great ruler. Yes, some of this was about monuments, and splendor, and great cultural achievements, but it also meant practical investments to improve the lives of the city's residents, like the new markets, public water system, and sewage system. Of course, like most self-portraits, this one is very flattering. Looking narrowly at Paris, we don't see all the other places in Napoleon's empire that desperately needed investment, but were much lower priorities because they weren't the capital. We don't see the economic hardship sown in other places by high taxes, or the problems caused by the huge indemnities imposed on foreign governments, without which Napoleon could not have paid for all these improvements. And of course, you can always question Napoleon's motivations. How many improvements to the capital were inspired by the emperor's fear of the mob, and his cynical desire to keep the people of Paris loyal and docile? How much of it was born out of a selfish desire to see his own glory reflected back at him, and to ensure his name was spoken with awe by future generations? Then again, don't most politicians enter public service with the idea of advancing themselves by doing good for their communities? I very much doubt that the people who had access to clean water or medical care for the first time in their lives cared very much whether Napoleon's heart was pure when he launched these initiatives. In any case, I think we have to conclude that Napoleon's reforms to the city were mostly successful. He delivered tangible benefits to the city's people, and left a mark on its culture and geography that is still detectable today, over 200 years after his downfall. He would remain popular among the Parisians for most of our story, and even after his defeat, many in the city looked back on the empire with fondness. You could fill entire volumes with the story of Paris and its people during this remarkable era. What I've given you in this episode is not much more than a glance, but hopefully it was enough to give you an impression, and to illuminate our protagonist a little bit better. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to a book that was a huge help in writing this episode, The Caesar of Paris by Susan Jacques. I would particularly recommend this book if you're a fan of classical history. She does a great job weaving together Roman and Napoleonic history, and drawing parallels between Bonaparte and his historical heroes. Next episode, we'll continue exploring the nature of Napoleonic rule. Until then, thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.